Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Bookshop Podcast. Join me as I chat with guests who specialize in topics dear to my heart, the humanities and our environment. Ari Poppe is the founder and CEO of Psy Futures. His passion is to help change our beliefs about what's possible, thereby helping to ensure a more beneficial future for all. Psy Futures uses the power of storytelling and science fiction as a way to help their clients break down belief barriers and get a much richer, much more visceral, a much more future-literate sense of the future, storytelling versus facts. Hi, Ari, and welcome to the show. Hi, Mandy. It's excellent to be here. Thanks for having me. You're quite welcome. It's fun to have you here. Now, you've lived in South Africa, Australia, and the United States. How has living in multiple countries and world travel influenced your outlook on what is possible? Well, I think the biggest lesson you learn, like you, man, you've, you've lived all over too, is when you meet different people, you realize that we're all kind of the same. Even though we have different cultures and different upbringings and different values, we pretty much are the same. And uh, it just made me, I guess, less tribal in a way, you know, in, in a very tribal time. It's made me less tribal. It's made me believe more in, I think, in the ability for us to be um, more accepting of each other, you know, living in different countries. And and uh, when, when we're less tribal, more accepting of each other, then, you know, we can do anything together, I think. So, yeah, definitely, I think it makes me much more open to possibilities. I couldn't agree more. And I like to encourage anybody, if they can, to go live in another country for a while. And hopefully, once we're on the other side of this pandemic, that can become a reality. And how and when did you become interested in futurism? Well, I think it was always sort of in my blood. You know, as a little boy, I was a big sci-fi fan, you know, from his, you know, seven, eight years old with the movies and Star Trek and Star Wars. And then I got into a phase in my teens where I would just read sci-fi nonstop, you know, sad little geek that I was. <laughs> but um, that always gave me a sense of... Um, of what's possible and and believe it or not the kind of guinness book of records um, my mother used to buy that for me every year it used to come out in a big hardcover big thick book and i used to read that book cover to cover uh, you know in a couple of sittings and it just made me realize that we're extraordinary beings human beings even though some of those records are really hokey and silly the fact that somebody can, you know, do 7,497,000 push-ups, you know, is, is inspiring. Um, and I think that always made me open to that. Seeing someone with an innate desire wanting to do something that hasn't been done before, that's what's inspiring. Yeah, exactly. It, it's that um, innovative spirit, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pushing boundaries. Very true. So, Ari, what is a futurist? What does your job entail? Do you look at the past to unpredictably predict the future, trends, shifts, and ethics? You have got some really great questions. Um, these, are, these are great questions. Well, if you want a good definition of a futurist, you probably won't get it. <laughs> you probably ask 100 futurists what a futurist is and they'll each tell you something different. But, but the way I define it is, um, and what I do is, when I'm successful, when when my company's successful, what we're able to do is to create a shared belief about what's possible, 
and practical ways to change um, the present. So it's less about predicting the future and, and, and trying to understand what's going to happen. It's much more about helping us identify what our North Star could be and then what we need to change today to get to that. So that's our philosophy. Other futurists, um, more traditional, I'd say, classical futurists, they are kind of wedded to the idea that you can develop scenario plans and contingency plans and model all the variables and create your, you know, your scenario 659 and this is what you do when that happens. But I, I just don't believe that's how we work as human beings and, and how the future is. What I believe is that um, the degree to which you'll have success in creating a preferred future is how much passion, enthusiasm, and interest you can you can create in a group of people to have a shared belief about what's possible, and then to create the plans to kind of how you could do that today. So that's what we spend our time mostly working on. And can you walk us through the process SciFuture uses to guide a client through the process of inventing a new advertising campaign and the length of this process? and how science fiction writers help you create campaigns. Yeah, so so the work we do is less, you know, outward-facing, like um, advertising campaigns. It's m- much more internal, um, changing cultures and changing organisations from the inside because a lot of our clients are these big Fortune 500 companies like Coca-Cola and, you know, they've been doing similar things for years and years and they're very good at it. Um, and they've perfected it to within an inch of its life. But the world is changing so quickly. So for them, it's important to know um, how to transform themselves from the inside. And that's really where we specialize. Um, so the very niche kind of specialty where we create these North Star visions grounded in the science, the facts, the emerging technologies, the signals around us. Um, and then we use story because story is one of the most powerful tools we have as a species to communicate. We use story to create an emotional connection and a visceral connection with the future. And then that becomes a transformation device to, to create epiphanies about what the company could do. So the old-fashioned way of doing that is you bring a futurist in or a trend watcher or, you know, and they would say, here are all the trends that are influencing us today, and they'll do a, a presentation and um, this is what the world's going to be like in 10 years. And then they leave. And then you wonder why like, nothing meaningful has happened. So what so Futures did is we just turned that model on, on its head and we said, no, let's still use all the trends in the data, but let's create stories and get people to embody these stories and experience these stories um, and then work backwards from there to figure out what we need to need to do today to transform. And um, yeah, it's really successful. It works really well. And roughly how many writers do you have on call that you can contact to help you with the process of creating these new stories for your clients? Well, we have a community of writers of, of over 300 now around the world. Some are well-known names that you would know, and some are... Um, just people who, who love writing sci-fi or, um, you know, wish they could be full-time writers but can't for whatever reason. Sometimes we use all of them. Sometimes we just use a few. What, what's cool is we've been able to profile them all. So we know, like, their backgrounds and their education and their passion, their hobbies. 
Um, so if we have a client, for example, who wants to know the future of pet care, um, you know, we can call on maybe some animal lovers or call on, you know, people who might have had experience in that industry. And is there a certain word count you ask for when you're creating a campaign? Yeah, so it's a good question. Our process varies depending on who our client is and what they're trying to do. But if we're trying to get like a general, let's say, data collection overview of what the future looks like in a particular industry for our client, we might get what we call short story vignettes or kind of little kind of synopses of stories. And there might be 300 to 500 words and we might get 20, 30, 40 stories of them. And it's really fascinating. It's almost like a little data gathering exercise where you're mining these like visionary people about where they see the world going. We, you know, the briefing's really important. But um, so that's one way of doing it. And we, this is more of like a data collection using stories of strategy and envisioning. But then if we're creating um, what we call high fidelity storytelling or more finished content, then it depends on our client's budget. So we could do video, you know, so we'd write a script or we could do uh, magazines of the future, which are really cool deliverable. Um, basically what that is, is you imagine, you know, 10, 15 years in the future and you create a whole magazine around it. Um, that's a really powerful device. Um, yeah, so it just depends. And those are the more like high fidelity. And we might, we wouldn't work with all 300. You know, for that, we might work with just two, three or four really good writers that, you know, understand it. And do you ever use the graphic novel format? We've done a few graphic novels. Um, we've actually moved away from them a bit over the years because they're expensive to do well. Yeah, that's a lot of illustrations. Exactly. Yeah. And, and to do it well, like, you, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into creating those panels. They're great artifacts. They really are amazing. Um, but these future magazines are, are, really, are really powerful for us. Um, we, we love those. And can you share with us how SciFutures is able to encourage clients to look at the moral implications of their projects and perhaps give us an example of how that looks? Mm. Yes. Um, I love that question so much. One of the things that science fiction allows us to do, right, is to speculate about human beings in the future as a result of technologies influencing them or changing our lives. And almost all of the time, there are ethical or moral choices that are um, either implied within the way the future unfolded or kind of dealt with successfully or unsuccessfully as a result of, of innovation. Um, so almost by default, by doing this work, you stumble upon ethical, moral decision-making and choices. Um, so one, one example is that we're doing a lot of work on technologies that can measure your biometrics and know your emotions or your feelings. So if you wear a Fitbit, you know that it can measure your heart rate. And if it knows your heart rate, and particularly heart rate variability, it can know in your um, what kind of moods or feelings you're having at any point in time. So that obviously has tremendous ethical implications around people's privacy. And, and if you know someone's feeling, you can manipulate them. So what these stories do is they allow us to anticipate some of the unintended consequences of these types of 
technologies and to deal with them in a, in a constructive way or before they blow up. Um, and I'll give you an example of technologies blowing up. Facebook, <laughs> that blew up. <laughs> it sure did. Do you think it's going to recover? Um, I don't know. I'm really angry with Facebook right now, to be honest. Um, I feel like it's breaking up democracy in our world, and I don't think like they're doing enough. They are hiring great people who've done a lot of work in, like, you know, EFF, Electronic Freedom Foundation, and they are pulling people into the organization that have expertise around ethics and technology. So I think there's part of the company that wants to change. But um, I wish they would do more, personally. Yeah, I agree. Now, Ari, you are a vegan, as are many members of your family. And in a lecture I heard given by futurist Gerd Leonard, he suggested it may be that the future of food and diet be vegetarian due to global meat consumption. Do you see this change as being adopted due to personal choice and the need to protect the planet? Or do you see it as a gradual process with small regenerative and thoughtful farming taking over from corporate farming due to the need to repair soil, etc.? Yes, um... You know, it's, it's another phenomenal question. And I think the reality is that if more people were vegetarian or vegan, um, it would be one of the single most effective ways to combat, combat climate change, climate disaster. And it's also the single easiest way for people to make a meaningful change. You just stop eating meat or animal products and boom, huge amounts of carbon basically reduced so but but and this is the big but that's not enough of a motivator for individuals at an individual level because that's not how we work as human beings the vegans in my opinion that stick to veganism are the ones that do it out of purely ethical reasons so that it's almost like a religious or spiritual belief so they make a choice to become vegan because they fundamentally believe it's the right thing and they don't want to see animals suffer. Those are the vegans that stay vegan. The ones that do it because they might lose some weight or the ones that do it because, um, you know, it's bad for the environment or the ones that do it because they feel guilty, they usually the ones who relapse a few months, you know, later when, you know, when the great you know, slice of pizza comes in front of them and it's like, oh, what's a slice of pizza? But the question is, and this is one that we obsess about a lot, is if we're in the business of transforming belief about what's possible, how do we get people to become vegan? What kind of messaging do we need to do? What you know, and, and Peter, God bless them, you know, they're like these angry, angry righteous animal rights group, and you know, we love them, but that doesn't work that well. No offense to Peter, it just hasn't. Um, and then you look at you know, other animal rights organizations and they, they send up these, these shocking animal abuse videos and, and you know, that doesn't really work. And then um, the, way that, the way that people are going to become vegan is through companies like Beyond that are creating hamburgers that are indistinguishable from meat and impossible and that's the way. So when you're in the supermarket and you're standing in front of minced cow or plants and they're the same price and they taste good and they look pretty much the same, you're going to buy that. And that's that's what I'm excited about is kind of this innovation in the space. Yeah, I think that's the reality, unfortunately. 
Yeah, remember when some of those vegan products were just like eating cardboard, to be honest, but now they've changed. And like you said, the Impossible Burger, they're they're almost so close to eating meat that I can't eat one. (laughs) So yeah, I think it's about making the product more saleable to everyone. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you're starting to see large meat companies like Tyson Foods investing in you know, these alternative meat companies. Um, So there's definitely a lot of change happening. Um, It's just going to take a while before the product's going to be good enough and cheap enough um, and where it's like, you know, just no one in their right mind would buy minced cow. They'd rather just, you know, get get the plant version. And then I also think a younger generation needs to come up a bit and cycle through, you know, where just like cigarettes was part of our lives and everyone smoked and then it became you know, kind of the rebellious thing. And then it was like, you're crazy. And I think the same thing will happen with with meat. Um, it's just going to take a little bit of time. And which countries do you see as the most forward in the realm of futurist thinking and open to using technology on a day-to-day basis, for example, in the household? And what does that look like? Meaning the work that we do, like being more innovative? Yes. Um well, it's a great question. I think it's less about countries, although there are certain countries that are more innovative than others or more encouraging of innovation. Um, the US is certainly one, Europe, um, France. Um, but I think it's more about individuals within corporations or organizations. These are people who, they're kind of brave clients who have seen the writing on the wall anticipate the need for change, believe in the power of storytelling, and they want to bring in these wacky ideas into their organization. So I think it's less like country or company. It's more like a team of people or a group of people. And our our job is to find them. (laughs) Yeah. And is that difficult? Not as hard as I thought it would be, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. Not as hard as I thought. Thank God. Yeah. And for the sci-fi writers out there who are listening, how would they go about finding SciFutures? Yeah, um, SciFutures.com. We've got a little tab for writers. You can just click on that and that'll give you a form to fill in and um, you can submit your details. Yeah. I'm really taken with the concept of solving issues through telling stories because that is the art of storytelling so i'm really impressed that you're using this to come up with ideas for guiding companies into the future it's pretty exciting yeah what i'm really interested man in what you do is telling great stories um and and you know storytelling as a as a transformational device i think that's something i'm super passionate about and I have so much respect for writers, you know, people who are committed to the art of writing and, and because it's so difficult and it, you're putting your soul, your blood, sweat and tears out there into the world. Yeah, all of that and more. <laughs> now, how did you actually come up with the idea for SciFutures? Yeah, it was in a, it was in a sci-fi writing class. Um, you know, I was trying to write sci-fi and, um, yeah, that, that's where the idea came. But I think anybody who's a creative trying to put their ideas about the world themselves, the universe on paper and put it out into the world, it's something I have so much respect and admiration for. And how big is the team within SciFutures? Well, we're a small team, but we have a lot of... Um, 
freelancers. Um, so people we've been working with for years, um, they kind of come come in and out, you know, you know gig, gig work, freelance work. And how has the company transitioned during the pandemic? Yeah, no, it was um, first like a few months, you know, everything was like frozen in ice. And then, you know, just started to thaw out. And now actually we're really busy right now, which is, which is really nice. I think, you know, people are, are adjustable and our clients are adjustable. And it's like, all right, well, the future's not going to wait for us. We're still going to have to deal with it. As soon as like people realize they still have jobs and, you know, the world literally wasn't ending. I mean, not to take away from the suffering of some people that's happening, but as soon as our clients realized that they, um, you know, the budgets opened up again and we got, got back in the saddle. Thank God. <laughs> it's interesting because I was just thinking that the philosophy of Psy Futures, you know, creating and looking into the future correlates with how I thought during the first few months of the pandemic. I froze <laughs> and then I just went, okay, what are the possibilities? Yeah, nice. And in some ways, I think it was a cosmic kick in the butt to, you know, get motivated. Was it similar for you and your company or more so for your clients? Yeah, definitely. You know, we, when, when COVID came and we called it the great pause, you know, or the great reset, so it was like, okay, are we going to, let's learn, let's, you know, let's l- let no crisis go wasted, you know. I think there was a lot of hope that may, maybe we would use this moment to re-examine things and maybe make some big structural change. And I think the jury's out whether that, that's going to happen or not. I'm hoping it, it is, but, you know, I'm not sure, to be, to be really honest. One of the projects we did at the beginning of the year while we were waiting for the, you know, the work to come back and deep thaw was around, like, the future of empathy. So one of the things that the COVID crisis really brought home was how connected we all are. So connected as in literally somebody gets sick in China and there's a global pandemic, but also by not being able to be with people, it was really painful in some ways, you know, just having to stay at home and not see your family and just not hug people. So it just made us think about, well, what does the future of empathy look like? How can we learn from these um, mistakes that we're making and then create a more empathetic society. So we went out to all our writers and um, they wrote their visions of the future of empathy. And we did a pro bono and we basically donated all the proceeds to Doctors Without Borders. Yeah, and some of the insights we, we got were, were, were good. We're like, um, maybe we need some other values, not just profit, but, you know, valuing, you know, new, new sources of value and, and and creating um, a more just and kind of equitable societies, uh, you know. So it was interesting. It was, there were some interesting provocations in, in those narratives of the future. Um, what what I'm interested in is personally is, um, you know, because technology is such a huge part of our life and, and going to be even more profoundly powerful, particularly AI, how can we leverage technology so that we have more humanity rather than the other way around with you know technology right now we're we're becoming slaves to it you know are there are there aspects of of technology that can make us better people or connect more deeply with each other and so one of the one of the things that I, i think a lot about is this idea that as human beings we 
we, you know, we, I forget who said this quote. I need to find it because it's such a great quote. But, you know, we're prehistoric beings living in the information age. So we kind of have like this ancient reptilian brain that's evolved over, you know, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. But we're living in an information age. So we've come, there's this mismatch. So how do we, can we use technology to kind of lift us up so that we can deal with our new realities in a much more compassionate and empathetic way? So I'll give you an example. You know, we're programmed hardwired in many ways to fear like snakes and spiders. <laughs> you know, these are like irrational fears, but we don't, we don't, we're not terrified of heart disease or climate change or, but this is the way we've evolved, I think. So how do we, how do we use technology to kind of almost upgrade our brains? You know, so if I'm driving in the car and somebody cuts me off and I have this flash of road rage that is dangerous for me and the person who cut me off, is there a way that technology can kind of almost help us and broker, broker our kind of reptilian brains? So I like to think about things like that. I do think technology potentially could, could play a really important role in that. You know, I could almost envision a future where we have an AI agent that knows us better than we know ourselves. And through experience living with us and through its own kind of, uh, let's say, more enlightened lens, it might say, you know, Ari, I know you're acting this way or you're triggered or you're feeling defensive or, but, but here's why. And maybe you want to, you know, maybe you want to challenge that assumption because of X, Y, and Z. And I think that's, It'll get annoying. You'll probably want to turn it off or throw it in the garbage bin. But, um, but that's probably, um, probably a clue for us. I do think that as a species, we just have such wonderful qualities and, you know, we've achieved such magnificent things. But we also have these kind of primal, unrefined aspects to, our, to ourselves that, um, frankly, if we're ever going to solve for climate change or if we're going to, create like a global consciousness, we've got, we got to figure it out pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a writing prompt if ever I've heard one. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, thank you, Ari. This has been really fun chatting with you and getting to learn about futurism. Maybe you can come back on the show another time. That would be fun. No, of course, and I'd, I'd be happy to come back and do more any anytime. I'd love to. Thanks for the great questions as well. You're welcome, and thanks for the work you do.